Episode 276, COVID-19, Advice for Self-Insured Employers and That Prediction of a 4 to 40% Premium Increase in the Fully Insured Market. Today, I speak with Brian Scott from Point Six Healthcare. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I talk with Brian Scott. Brian has a background which is perfect for the question of will employer healthcare costs go up or will they go down? As a result of this pandemic, First, Brian was an underwriter at United. Then he was in a dedicated complex claims group for Lockton that managed self-funded plans. And now he's at Point Six Healthcare, where he works to put together the best value plan for employers, including getting stop loss. Brian works with TPAs across the country to this end. So this conversation that I had with Brian is a two-part affair. The first episode, 275, was mostly about the specific additions as a result of this pandemic used in cost models and also what some self-insured employers are doing or considering doing to address the underlying risk factors that might help drive up costs in a plan. This, however, is episode 276, and it includes Brian's advice for self-insured employers as well as a look into the fully insured market. Why there have been those estimates that costs will go up 4 to 40 percent when premiums are re-upped. Brian has some thoughts. You should definitely listen to both episodes, 275 and 276, although you probably don't need to listen to them in order if you just happen to hit on the show first. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Brian Scott, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you very much, Stacey. If I'm thinking like an employer here, you know, there was just this Milliman report which came out last week, which you probably saw, that showed a dip in employer spend in the short term, but then kind of rising up in Q3 and Q4, not necessarily above baseline, but just, you know, there's no elective surgeries and whatnot now. And most employers are not experiencing a ton of COVID costs across the country, you know, unless you happen to be in the one of the hotspots, unfortunately for you. So the net net, said Milliman, in, in 2020 anyway, is going to be a drop in healthcare costs in 2020. However, I was talking to John Harvey from Wincline, and he said that generally speaking, employers should be not necessarily looking one year at a time. They should be looking out at least two years. So then the question becomes, what happens in 2021? You know, like net net, if we look across a longer time frame, how do costs, do the pluses that we've talked about exceed the subtractions that we've talked about? How are you thinking about this? So the different models that I've heard discussed include a V-shape, a W-shape, and an L-shape. And there's no consensus, clearly. A lot of the carriers, short of changing anything having to do with how the plan is run, they look at it at the likely cost expectation as either a V or a W, where the right-hand side is taller than the left-hand side. So I think reports like the Milliman report are helpful because they help to temper some of that wonder about just how tall that right-hand side of the letter is going to be. At the same time, the 
underwriting background, having been an underwriter in the past, I feel like I can talk to this at least a little bit to be somewhat conservative. So having someone to help both address the underlying risk factors that might drive costs up within a plan and help put in strategies to help reduce them, and then getting good contracting on that type of risk financing that you're purchasing, which for most employers in that middle market is stop loss, is important. And we know that there are going to be employers who say, this all feels too risky to me. I have to go back to being in a fully insured environment. And there will be other employers who say, I'm in a fully insured environment or I'm in an ASO environment with a buka on a self-funded basis, but I can't necessarily handle the costs that I'm dealing with. And I think that there are going to be solutions. Having a good partner to help sift through, you know, what are some good strategies that can make a meaningful impact for your plan and your members is very important right now. I have heard it said more than once by more than one person that, you know, kind of part of this flashpoint is employers waking up and realizing that they actually have maybe more power than they thought. You know, one way to think about this is to, you know, for PCPs, obviously exalting primary care is underpins any value-based model wherein people, you know, employers are paying for their employees to be healthy as opposed to paying somebody to deliver a volume of services when everybody in that kind of chain has an incentive to see the volume of services increase and see the price of those services increase. So, you know, one thing has been suggested that coming out of this is that we could see more PCPs, for example, being paid, you know, three or four or five percent of overall healthcare spend, which is what they should be paid anyway. It eliminates a ton of paperwork and it incents primary care physicians to, you know, not only ensure that there's fewer exacerbated events and that we're taking care of, you know, patients so that they can be healthy, but also that they can direct and steer care to lower cost providers. So do you feel like employers, given this crunch that we're under, are really gonna, and maybe this is basically another way of just asking you the same question I asked you before, but, you know, like if employers take up the torch here, they may actually meaningfully be able to impact the prices of care in this country today. However, if they continue to kind of stand back and play the role of the damsel in distress, but not necessarily do anything proactive, then I'm thinking we're just going to, it's going to be more of the same. The thing that occurs to me as you're talking through the direct primary care model and other ways that we could get away from fee-for-service for almost every service, it's important to know whether or not there is a return on investment for what you're getting. The interesting thing with what you mentioned, if you say 3 to 5% of your overall cost is going to direct primary care, assuming that model holds up, you're not spending any more in that case than you had already been spending in the past, but you're getting a return on investment that you hadn't gotten spending those same dollars in the past. And you're getting improved member outcomes at a reduced cost to them in theory. Finding solutions that do those things seems like a really important goal along that line of how do we get the actual cost of the care that's delivered to come down. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, along those lines, we've got bundled pricing, we've got medical travel. And, you know, now with telemedicine, you don't necessarily have to call the doctor down the street. (laughs) You know, I think medical travel, you know, like picking centers of excellence becomes all the more feasible. 
but it's a different way of thinking about things. It is. And a lot of it has to do with who do I receive direction from? So in the direct primary care model, you're probably getting referred to specialists and other local providers by your primary care physician, assuming that you adopted a direct primary care model that connects you with a local physician in the first place. There could be direct primary care models that combine house calls with telemedicine across the country, depending on what the model's identification of the higher value care interaction you know, system is. And you're going to have other technology solutions too that also help to navigate where can I go? What's the impact to me on cost? What's the impact to my plan on cost? What are some incentives that might be tied to both of those things? And I think you're going to see, like you mentioned earlier, adoption. These are not necessarily new solutions, but adoption rates and engagement with the solutions already has been demonstrated to be changing. And that's what seems likely to endure. So, Brian, as a guy who works at a stop-loss carrier, is your interest in all of these topics because obviously it's in the interest of the stop-loss carrier that employers don't tap into their stop-loss. So basically, you have kind of a vested interest to help employers. I mean, I'm kind of regarding this as a win-win. To help employers do things such that they have a foundational model which helps patients not need big-ticket items, which typically suck for everybody including the patient. Right. One important distinction, I negotiate with stop-loss carriers, but I don't work for them or I don't, I don't work for one, but that doesn't change the premise. I would agree, it, even though it's hard as an employer to look at a stop-loss program and say, I just spent a lot more money in premium than I got back in reimbursements. That's a common discussion to be had with an employer who's purchasing stop-losses how much did I get back considering how much I put into this program? And it makes sense to be asking that question. Viewing it as being in your best interest as the employer when you didn't get back as much as you put in is reasonable because when that happened, for one thing, there's added negotiating power. You're more likely to get lower rates or at least less of an increase at the next renewal. And it means that your population's health outcomes are likely improving versus what they might have done in the past. So as long as you've got good contracting on the front end, good pricing on the front end, and you still have that outcome, that is like a win-win for everybody in that stakeholder chain. All right, so let's talk about fully insured rates going up, some ridiculous amount. Covered California did a study that showed or they're claiming that fully insured rates are going to go up. And it was like 4 to 40% coming out of COVID, which is insane. Based on all the math that we're talking about, you know, the W, the V, or the L, why would the fully insured market be any different than the self-insured market that they can make these proclamations? Right. Yeah. The thing that occurs to me is this is not hugely different from the early days of ACA exchanges. With those projections being just all over the map and depending on which carrier you're talking to within an ACA exchange, you might have a wildly different increase being proposed compared to the other carriers. We certainly experienced that in my home state of Minnesota with 
some carriers entering the market at different times, exiting the market at different times, giving very different increases at the renewals. And the models ultimately are evolving all the time. The biggest difference for a fully insured plan like Covered California would be a form of a fully insured plan. They have to accept all of the changes in member versus plan cost sharing, but they don't have an opportunity to recontract with providers across the board in a meaningful way. They offer whatever the contract is that they offer, and it changes on a rolling basis over time. They're going to be in a tough position because the providers, they've already lost so much revenue that they would normally get from broad-based utilization. Even if there was an attempt to make a recontracting across the board, it would be very hard for them to do so. So ultimately, they deliver the service and the product that they deliver, and they can't really change it year over year. And so I can see where they would come to that conservative underwriting conclusion that, uh uh-oh, we better be braced for that right-hand side of the letter to be much bigger than the left-hand side. So let me understand what you're saying. Effectively, what's been said hasn't just been said, it's been written down. Employers are on the hook for whatever a hospital is going to charge for COVID. And it's been well documented at at this juncture that the hospitals are charging pretty much for COVID. You know, now they're handling the dual issue where COVID cases... Once again, depending on where you are, there might not be that many from a hospital's perspective. So they're not making much COVID revenue, but elective services have plummeted. So maybe they're going to take it upon themselves just to change rates or add tack on some stuff for COVID. I've heard it said that you can charge COVID rates even if the person necessarily hasn't been identified as COVID positive. So now all of a sudden the floodgates open and you've got hospitals who can charge basically whatever they want. And because the fully insured plan, this is a hypothesis, I'm going to ask you if I'm thinking correctly here. You know, you've got the fully insured plans who have negotiated based on a discount of some kind. So not necessarily the absolute number. So if they jack up the absolute number, then it doesn't matter what discount you've negotiated, your costs go up. Basically, yes. And it is easy to, to focus on the cost of care for COVID cases. And we could probably go down the rabbit hole of saying, well, 50% of the cases that are hospitalized are over 65, so they're probably not covered by an employer plan. And then the other 50%, half of them are between the ages of 50 and 65. So it really depends on how many people you have within that age population. But at the end of the day, provider billing behavior is going to be impacted well beyond COVID. We've seen an example recently where There was a $24 million bill submitted for a very sick child that has spent over a year in the NICU. It hasn't been repriced, but it's a $24 million bill and the child's still in the NICU. Just to give a point of reference, you normally don't see that happen, that bill get submitted from this type of facility until after that stay has ended. So it may or may not have been COVID that caused them to submit this interim bill But we've heard evidence that that same type of behavior is happening with some people who are getting treated for COVID and others who are not getting treated for COVID, where the hospitals basically are looking at this situation where all the elective procedures are out the door and saying, well, who's still here and how can we get revenue on them sooner than later? Yeah, I've also heard that because there's a lot of uninsured who are either going to wind up on an exchange plan or 
maybe Medicaid, that also diminishes the revenue opportunities for hospitals. So, you know, it's not like hospitals are like, oh, shucks, (laughs) (laughs) take that one on the chin. You know, effectively what they're doing is trying to figure out how to bill commercial patients all the more to make up the shortfall. Yep. And again, this comes back to that discussion of Covered California. They hopefully have good processes to look at that, pick it apart and say, did the level of care get stepped down as this person progressed through their episode of care and the charges get changed accordingly? And was everything that happened here medically necessary? And, you know, have those things that unfortunately are important to protect the payer from overpaying. The same thing can happen on the self-funded employer side using the right partners, whether it's the administrator or a special service to do bill audits or other ways to really dig into those complex claims and make sure that they're not being used as revenue drivers inappropriately for that provider. On the other hand, you know, if we're speaking about MLR, medical loss ratios that fully insured payers need to abide by, you know, 20% of a bigger number is a bigger absolute number. So in many respects, increasing costs are a bonanza for fully insured plans because they can just raise their premiums and make more money. So do they really have, you know, whereas a self-insured employer obviously has a very vested interest to take a hard look at those bills, does, in your experience, a fully insured carrier have that same incentive and do they tend to do that? Or maybe they haven't historically because they haven't. But moving forward, just given the fact that employers are at the breaking point before, you can't just raise premiums 40%. Like, you can't do that. What do you think is going to happen here? I would say that you just described a moral dilemma that's been in place for quite some time. And I'm sure that you see behavior that tends more towards one side of the moral dilemma than the other, depending on who you're talking about and who's in charge at the time and what other events are going on around. But the point there from a self-funded employer perspective is you know for sure who you're serving and what your incentive is to put the right program in place when you're in that position. From a self-insured perspective. From a self-insured perspective. Yep. Yeah, which doesn't help anybody that's that's fully insured. I mean, I feel like the the dilemma that a fully insured smaller employer is going to have is do we continue to offer insurance? Like this could be the moment that people are like, yeah, I would love to do this for my employees, just can't. Just can't. So, we're going to do the whole let them buy it on the exchanges. I forget what the letters are. But basically, yes. <laughs> you just give some money and... There's new HRA rules. Because I don't know how anybody would think after double-digit increases for as long as we've had double-digit increases that tacking on an additional 40%, that anyone's going to be like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll go along with that. Right. Nope. Especially in a year where the MLR rules are going to mean that a lot of fully insured carriers are going to be sending rebates to their members this year. At the same time that they are, maybe it's posturing, maybe it's actual projection, but at the same time that they're saying, but we could also be charging you as much as 40% more next year. So let me ask you this, Brian, what should, let's limit this to self-insured employers at this juncture. What should a self-insured employer not be doing right now? Like, what do you think maybe is a knee-jerk reaction? Maybe you've got phone calls about this, like, should I do this? But is, once you think it through logically, like, not a good idea. A few things come to mind that is... Such a good question. And we are certainly getting plenty of questions about everything from 
how do I handle eligibility and continuation of coverage for people who are reduced hours or maybe furloughed to should I pass on a greater share of the cost? Should I make plan changes, sweeping plan changes in the middle of the year that ultimately mean the members that are covered by the plan are responsible for more of the cost of the care that's delivered under the plan? Those are things that, of course, may have to be considered by some employers. But the thing that I wouldn't do is get so focused on the cost of any given solution that you don't take into consideration the value that it might provide. So there might be a change in the mix of how much you spend on fixed costs to various vendors that you're working with versus the amount that you're spending on claims. And if spending more on the one means spending a lot less on the other, then it might be a worthwhile solution. So the spreadsheet is something that is ubiquitous throughout the consultant and consultee relationship. And within the spreadsheet, sometimes things can get missed along the lines of how much value can both I as the employer and the people that I'm covering as my member population, as my ultimately sustaining business model, which is how most businesses will look at their employees. How is that relationship going to be helped along with how are my finances going to be impacted by the decisions that I'm making right now? Especially if you think about that in a capitated or global payment model, you know, you've got sort of a fixed expense, as we were talking about earlier, to take care of a population of employees. So that's going to be a, I guess someone could look at that and go, oh, well, we can get rid of that fixed expense. But it's not like, you know, those employees are now suddenly going to be healed. They're just going to be incremental reactive charges (laughs) instead of a probably smaller proactive value-based charge. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, we could even relate it right to the direct primary care model. That is an increase in fixed expense. You're paying a capitated model, but you're changing the dynamics of how the rest of the plan works and creating some sort of change there. And just to make sure that I've said it, when we're working with stop loss carriers, if an employer is seeking to get kind of an idea of what the value of a change like that might be, We include those sorts of conversations with the stop loss carrier when we're negotiating with them to see, hey, is this something that we have buy-in that the person who actually is taking the risk of really big costs happening on this plan is willing to give a better deal if the solution is put in place? And so that's one signal that we help employers and their consultants to get in order to validate what the options are that they're looking at. Are there any other signals such as that, you know, self-insured employer might want to take a look at? Because ultimately, I mean, not only probably are your employees getting better care at a lower ultimate cost, but there's a stop loss discount that could be factored in on that spreadsheet. Yeah, the types of conversations range everywhere from, you know, going beyond direct primary care, direct provider contracting. And maybe the use of reference-based pricing as either a primary or a wrap network strategy around a smaller network that's really customized for an employer. A lot of the different ways that you can get interaction between what the amount that a provider will accept, how often members that are covered by your plan need to seek care in that setting versus having alternatives that they can get their care through, going back to the telemedicine discussion. 
and trying to tie all of those things together about how can you create the best chance that you're not going to have really big outlier costs on your plan and that the people covered by your plan are going to seek healthy outcomes for themselves more consistently than not. There are too many solutions for me to really say any one of them is the silver bullet, but considering those options and finding a way to control the costs in a way that you cannot do on a fully insured basis is uh, something that we help employers with every day. If someone is interested in learning more about Point Six, where can they go for information? They can start on the website, point6healthcare.com. But I would welcome anybody to reach out to me directly, brian.scott at point6healthcare.com. And just to clarify Point Six, one of the first things to know is our name came from the idea that Point Six percent of the population drives about 35% of the healthcare costs. So if you can do things that impact that part of the population and help their care to be delivered at the best value, you can impact the entire health plan in a very significant way. So those are the types of solutions that we seek to help employers to obtain. Brian Scott, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you so much, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.